Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. With all the news that's been going on lately, it's understandable that this story may have flown under the radar. Well, today is Dr. Dave Choksi's last day on the job as New York City Health Commissioner. It was a day of much fanfare for the man who helped lead New York City through a most difficult time. But with a new mayor comes a new man at the top. My name is Dr. Ashwin Vassen, and I'm the Commissioner of Health of New York City. This week on 880 In-Depth, we meet New York City's new health commissioner and hear his thoughts about what we learned from the pandemic. COVID focused our attention and we developed life-saving preventives and vaccines and um, treatments in an unprecedented timescale in an emergency. And so when we put our minds to it, we can do anything as a people, as a society, and certainly as a city. And while there is a sense that the worst is behind us, you will hear Dr. Vassin speak to what he believes is an equally serious crisis, the mental health of our city. It is indeed a crisis. Um, You know, the ripple effects, I call it the second pandemic. We're going to be dealing with this for years and decades to come, and the burden of which is going to fall disproportionately on our children. Welcome to 880 In-Depth, I'm Tim Scheld. Dr. Ashwin Vassen has an impressive resume that includes primary care medicine, epidemiology, and public health. He's well known for his work at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health and years spent working in the Fountain House, a national not-for-profit focused on people living with serious mental health issues. Lovely, this place is just an incredible embodiment of the kind of destinations and places that we want to build, the social infrastructure we want to build. Maybe that's why it was so important for him on his first week on the job to visit a facility in East Harlem operated by Project Renewal, a group that works to find health and social service solutions for New York's homeless population. Following that visit in East Harlem, our Peter Haskell got an in-depth sit-down with Dr. Vassin. We see COVID waning, but it still is a threat elsewhere and here. How how do you rank your priorities coming into this job? I mean, so one, thank you for speaking with me. It's it's an incredible honor to have this job, but not just this job, but at at this job at this moment. Um, We're at a really critical moment for uh, the health and well-being of our city. We are facing the throes of a pandemic, which we've been through for the last two years, and all of the physical, social, economic, and emotional impacts of that. And uh, we're facing uh, a second pandemic of mental health challenges, which are impacting, in particular, our children, um, impacting folks like we see here today um, with serious mental illness and substance use issues. Um, We're seeing our opioid crisis 
um, expand during the pandemic. And so it's a range of things that are confronting this city, but I think my experience at the intersection of primary care, epidemiology, public health, and mental health really prepare me for this moment. Um, and, and, you know, I'm very, very honored to be here. COVID is, you know, it's been an existential challenge for all of us. All of us have been impacted in one way or another. And, you know, I'm very, very proud as a New Yorker, as a father, as a husband of the city's response. Um, you know, it's been grounded in science. It's been grounded in data. And it's been grounded in empathy, really trying to reach into communities that have been historically left behind and, and do the really hard work of reaching people. Um, and that has resulted in, you know, 77% um, of New Yorkers fully vaccinated, um, nearly 50,000 lives saved. That's 50,000 brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, children who wouldn't otherwise be here today were it not for the over 17 million vaccines we've administered, over 300,000 hospitalizations we've averted. And so we have a lot to be proud of. And you asked me about whether where it lists on my priorities. COVID is something that we are better prepared today to respond to than we've been at any point. We not only have life-saving vaccines, we understand how to treat it much better. And we have incredible antiviral medications and a distribution program that's state-of-the-art same-day delivery of antivirals into the home. And so whatever this pandemic throws at us, and frankly, a lot of people who have played the prediction game with COVID have wound up with egg on their face, so you won't see me playing a lot of predictions. But I do know that we're, we're imminently prepared. Um, and, and this city is strong and this city is resilient, and I know that we will uh, face up to whatever it throws at us. Just talking about COVID, we've seen this surge in cases in a Hong Kong, in Europe. How concerned are you about this this Omicron subvariant coming here and creating a spike? We remain prepared and we remain vigilant. And part of that vigilance means really partnering with our colleagues at the CDC, at the WHO, and at ministries of health all over the world to really understand their data and to understand how their data might impact us. Um, you know, right now, what we know about this variant is that there isn't any evidence that it causes more severe disease, and that's really encouraging to us. But we remain really watching that data very carefully. You know, I review the data every day at 8.30 with the mayor and all of the senior leadership of the city. And we make our decisions based on that data. And so, like any data, we're watching very carefully what's happening in Asia and in Europe, and we'll, we'll adjust accordingly. You talked about vaccines. If I have my numbers right, about 36% of residents have been boosted. So is that number just over a third a concern for you? We want every... New Yorker who's eligible for a booster to get a booster. Um, one of the numbers I'm really pleased with is that New Yorkers above age 65, um, one of the most vulnerable groups and the group that has made up most of COVID hospitalizations and death, they're nearly 70% boosted. Um, and so we have work to do 
And this consider this my call again to New Yorkers. To you probably heard uh, my predecessor and city officials for the last two years uh, tell you to go get vaccinated, go get boosted, and you'll hear me do this for the first time. Please, New York, go get vaccinated, go get boosted for yourselves, for your family, for your community, and loved ones. The other end of the spectrum is kids, five to seventeen. It's under sixty percent. That it seems that research questions how effective the vaccine is. Obviously, a lot of parents haven't gotten their kids shots yet. So what do you tell them about that? You know, this is very personal to me. I have three school-aged kids, and, um, you know, I was first in line to get them vaccinated when they, when, it became, uh, when they became eligible. And so, um, you know, I'm very glad for that and thankful for that. And, um, you know, the most important thing that I've seen in the data is that the vaccines for 5 to 11s and above still have strong protection against severe illness, still have strong protection against hospitalization, which are ultimately incredibly important uh, indicators that we follow, perhaps uh, among the most important indicators that we follow. And so, so that is still very encouraging to me. Obviously, um, the recent data that came out of the state evaluation is one that you know, we, we take note of, and we would still encourage everyone, parents of children 5 to 11, to go get vaccinated. And I know that it's, um, you know, telling the manufacturer and the FDA are going back and reevaluating the protocol because um, the vaccine itself works. It's now going to be a question of dosing and spacing and, and issues like that. If the pandemic taught us anything, it is that public health officials believe it is critical to get their message out in the community. Hi, it's Dave Choksi, the city's doctor. Thanks to millions of you, we have made tremendous progress in New York City's vaccination campaign. Because of the protection New of... New York's vaccine. new health commissioner says that strategy is likely to continue. Is there going to be a push to try to get more kids vaccinated and to get more kids boosted? Is there going to be an ad campaign, incentives, anything like that? Yeah, we're, we're talking about that now. I mean, I think we, this job as Commissioner of Health has fundamentally changed during COVID in terms of the, the requirement and the need to really communicate well with the public. And, and I'm very proud of the work that was done uh, for the last two years on that front. And I will continue that. And that includes continuing to encourage New Yorkers to get vaccinated who are not vaccinated, who are not completely vaccinated, fully vaccinated, um, and encouraging folks who have not yet gotten their boosters to get boosted. Um, and, and yes, that includes campaigns, whether it's on TV or media, other forms of media, social media, digital media, print media. We're going to be communicating with New Yorkers about all of this going forward um, so they can expect to, to see a lot of me. You know, one quick thing about communication, there's been some criticism about either confusing or conflicting messages, federal level, state level, city level. How do you see that? Has that been a problem? I, I have a, an enormous amount of empathy for everyone involved in the COVID response to date for the environment in which they've had to communicate. At the beginning of this pandemic, we had leadership in Washington that questioned the foundation of whether this pandemic was real, questioned the science. It's very difficult as a scientist, as a doctor, 
as a healthcare practitioner to communicate to your patients and certainly to the public about risks and decisions and trade-offs um, in an environment where the very basics of science are being questioned. So that's one. Two, I would say, I think what I would encourage the public to just remember is that COVID didn't exist two years ago. And the scale and the pace of scientific evolution, let alone scientific response in terms of the development of the vaccine and antivirals is unprecedented. It is, is really a testament to human collective collaboration and action. I know we talk a lot about how polarized we are and how divided we are as a, as a city, as a country, as a society, but COVID focused our attention and we developed life-saving preventives and vaccines and um, treatments in an unprecedented time scale in an emergency. And so when we put our minds to it, we can do anything as a people, as a society, and certainly as a city. You talked about mental health before. Your predecessor, Dr. Dave Chucks, he talked about an epidemic of loneliness. I talked to the parents. They talk about stress and anxiety for their kids. Is this a crisis and how do we deal with this? It is indeed a crisis. Um, you know, the ripple effects, I call it the second pandemic. We're going to be dealing with this for years and decades to come. And the burden of which is going to fall disproportionately on our children and on people who already suffer and live with mental health challenges and substance use challenges. And we're seeing that in the data around children's unmet needs, children's reported anxiety, school principals and nurses and teachers reporting um, issues with social and emotional uh, learning and development. And, and I see this every day in my home. I have seen the impact of the pandemic on my own children's well-being, their own mental health and well-being. And so this is a, a, a top issue for me. Um, you know, loneliness is at the root of so much of mental health because the illnesses themselves are isolating and the way that we respond to them is further isolating with stigma and discrimination. And my work over the last several years at Fountain House taught me what it looks like when we break social and economic isolation, when we surround people with love and with community and with peers who have experienced similar um, challenges and that there are actually brighter futures ahead and there's hope and possibility for people that for far too long society has treated as outcasts and, and hopeless. And so as we think about our public health responses, as we think about our responsibilities to each other and to society, we need more places where more people can connect to break that loneliness, to break that isolation, and to, to heal from what's been a very, very traumatic and um, stressful time. You talk about the scope of the problem. Do, do we have the infrastructure? Do we have enough people out there to help treat and serve those who need it? I think you're sitting in, a, in just such infrastructure. This is a perfect example of the kind of social infrastructure that people need as alternatives to hospitalization, to homelessness, to sadly incarceration. These are the kinds of stepping stones, the destinations, the places 
that people need to go uh, on their journey to recovery. When we talk about reshaping our mental health systems, we talk about people, places, and policies. Certainly we need more workforce and we need more people to enter the behavioral health professions, the social work professions. We need more destinations and places where people can go and heal and find community and break isolation. And we need reforms in our policies which is why I'm so excited about our partnerships with the state and the federal government. I was so thrilled to hear President Biden talk about mental health at the State of the Union, first time since maybe John Kennedy did. And that signals to me that the country is ready, the state is ready, the city is ready for us to harness collective action to change our mental health health systems once and for all. One of the things you talked about was equity. What did we learn about inequity during this pandemic, and how do you fix it? I know that's kind of a hard question to answer, but how do you address this? Uh, I have colleagues much smarter than me who say the pandemic is a portal, and it's it's truly a window into long-standing structural uh, racial inequities that have plagued our society for far too long, and whose result has been deeply unequal health and social outcomes uh, in our city, perhaps one of the most unequal cities in the country, and in our country, one of the most unequal countries in the world. And so the health department over the last decade has really emphasized a place-based, equity-focused approach to all of its public health programs. And that's no different during COVID. Clearly, communities of color and communities in historically redlined neighborhoods in New York City bore the disproportionate burden of COVID cases, COVID hospitalizations, COVID deaths. And that tragedy led to the health department responding with concerted place-based efforts to reach into those communities. The communities hardest hit by COVID, what we call the task force on racial inclusion and equity communities, the 33 zip codes in New York that were hardest hit, reach into those communities with testing resources, with treatment resources, and with vaccines to the point where we're now seeing incredible gains and returns in terms of the level of immunity and protection in those communities. We have a lot of work to do, and it spans well beyond COVID across issues like cardiovascular disease and opioids and mental health, of course, but we've got a framework a place-based approach that, that we think is a really strong way to start. And we're leading the country in this work. Back to Dr. Vassen and his visit to Project Renewal in East Harlem. Meeting the city's issues, where the people are, where they live, where the homeless gather. It's a strategy he says he's committed to. As Dr. Vassen begins his challenge, he says government alone cannot solve these big problems. Yeah, interestingly, you know, I, I've been both an academic. I've been an academic. I've been um, a healthcare practitioner. Um, I've worked in government before, and I've run a nonprofit. And I think it's that diversity of experience that helps me understand that um, ultimately the public sector, government, is a force for good in the world, but it needs partners. It needs partners like nonprofits, like the one we're working with, we're here today, Project Renewal. That's an important partner to the city government to deliver this support and connection center. Um, it needs innovation, which can come from nonprofits, it can come from the private sector, 
but it needs to all sit within a public sector frame because ultimately government is responsible for everyone. We're responsible in particular for protecting the least amongst us. And, and I truly believe if um, COVID has taught us nothing is that government can be and should be and must be a force for good in the world. And so I think my diversity of experience really prepares me well for this job. But COVID has also put public health under attack and people have undermined it. You've got this political divide about vaccines and masks and all that's going on in the world. So the question is, why did you want this job? I love public health. I, I, you know, I've been working in the space for the better part of 20 years. I've always been interested in how large-scale social and economic forces converge on the lives of people. And, um, you know, I saw that early on in my life, uh, growing up in Chicago. My mother was a, a pediatrician on the west side of Chicago, taking care of low-income, mostly black and brown communities. I saw that how right across from public housing, how their health outcomes were so different from the relative privilege I had where I lived and grew up. Um, I had a mentor, Paul Farmer, who ran the nonprofit Partners in Health, who uh, we recently lost a few weeks ago, um, who taught me that being at the bedside was not just an opportunity for service to the individual, but, a, but a, came with a responsibility to take, bear witness and to take that lessons, those lessons to corridors of power and influence where you can change policy and influence politics. And so it's really that uh, bedside to systems view, that person to population view that makes me very passionate about public health, about mental health. Um, public health has been under what I like to say is an existential stress test. Um, you know, once in a, once in a generation, once in a lifetime, um, pandemic has um, exposed how, as a society and a people, we've neglected public health for so long. And frankly, it's because public health is measured by the things that don't happen. Public health is measured by how clean your water is and the fact that you don't get diarrheal diseases from drinking water. It's measured by the fact that we get lead out of your public housing and so you're not affected by lead poisoning. It's, it's, it's measured by all of the things we do to keep ourselves safe that don't happen and and vaccinations another example that's a very hard thing to get our heads around sometimes as a society as human beings that have a very present tense focus in their lives and so um, I think we have a lot to learn from this challenge you know there there's much to be proud of there's much to be proud of in the public health response in this city and in this country and it also represents a watershed, mo watershed moment for investment into public health. We need to invest in workforce. We need to invest in data systems. We need to invest in communications with the public and otherwise. And we need to invest in policies, public health policies. So um, I, I couldn't be more proud to be working in public health and certainly proud to lead this crown jewel of public health in, in this country and in this world. Commissioner, you have your hands full. I thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. It's great to talk to you. As much as we like to think that COVID is now behind us, Dr. Vassin says it's right to keep pushing for all those eligible to get vaccinated and boosted to prevent serious illness. All eyes are on a new Omicron subvariant that appears to be gaining some steam. 
It's not considered to be more dangerous or deadly, but it does seem to have a similar tract of contagion as Omicron. It spreads more easily. One other difference that scientists across the globe are seeing with this new subvariant, it seems to spread more in children. That's 880 In-Depth for this week. Peter Haskell and myself, Tim Scheld, are the executive producers. 880 In-Depth is a weekly deep dive on an important topic in our community. Our goal is to deliver context and clarity on a topic and let you have it available to listen on your time. Find all of our episodes on WCBS880.com under the podcast tab. Subscribe so you don't miss a week and you can listen back on your time. Just look for 880 In-Depth wherever you get your audio. Thank you for listening, and please be safe. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 